joined today by Ross Manuel, an avid military history enthusiast who chronicles Australia's military history through his podcast, I Was Only Doing My Job, as well as videos on TikTok. Ross and I crossed paths a little while back, and he'd asked if I was going to cover this or if I had covered this unique event in World War I where American and Australian troops fought side by side. I hadn't talked about it and admittedly didn't know much about this fight, so we thought, why not try to cover it together? So anyways, here it is, the Battle of Amel. Hope you enjoy. All right, Ross, I am excited to get into this. Um, this is one of those battles that I honestly hadn't really heard of until you mentioned it, but mm. reading more about it, I don't know, I'm a little surprised, but yeah, thanks for suggesting this, suggesting that we do something together here. I, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the things about like La Hamel, as you refer to it, is it's just one of those battles that in the grand scheme of history, it's a footnote. But for two, like for Australia and America, these are two countries that Hamel is a big deal. <laughs> and it doesn't get covered because it's not your Bellow Wood. It's not your Ver Gallipoli in terms of what we do. <laughs> yeah. So teaser, we're going to talk about a World War One battle that I... I've already warned Ross, I'm going to mispronounce more than once. It's Hamel. Yep. I'm going to Americanize that to Hamel, I'm certain, before we're done today. So just be ready for that. But um, when we're looking at this, this is one of the challenges when you get into some of these battles or these, you know, we're going to talk about some individual stories in the battlefield too, is where to start. And this happens in 1918. And it's really hard to not try to start with 1914. And the, and the entire First World War, because the reason that what they do is so important has to do with what's been going on for four years. But I think we decided on a little later start date. Oh, yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe the uh, the Russian exit of the war. I think that's a good point. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So basically following uh, the initial outbreak of war, Germany focuses really heavily on like, the trench warfare in the West, not so much in the East. But a little thing called the Russian Revolution happens in 1917, and the USSR pulls out of the war at the end of 1917. Basically, in the end with the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which basically Russian capitulation from the from the from the conflict, and that means that Germany has 48 divisions not doing anything, sitting on the Eastern Front, <laughs> and at the same time. And we have a newcomer joining the party, and that is the United States. <laughs> I don't know if this, I, I struggle with a lot of these like really interesting historical quotes because I feel like for every one that is true, there's another that's at the very least taken out of context or changed quite a bit. But there's one quote that I've seen over and over again from Lenin during this time period where he said, there's decades where nothing happens and there are weeks where decades happen. And mm -hmm. this is one of those weeks where... Russia withdraws from the war. The United States enters the war and you've got the Russian revolution going on. It's like that little period of time is going to impact the next hundred years. Oh yeah. And we're still seeing, you know, you're still seeing the effects of that. And basically, so because of this happening and American troops are coming ashore, uh, quartermaster general of the German army, Eric von Lutendorf realizes he has a very small window to exploit the troops that he has in reserve. 
because America's a million troops that have been drafted. They've been prom promised a million troops to come over. That will shift the balance directly into the Allied favor. But the American troops are untrained. They're, unex they're inexperienced. They're, you know, Pershing doesn't want to commit them to battle. <laughs> and then at the start of 1918, at this point, we don't know what's going on. We see one of the famous German counterattacks that no one ever predicts. <laughs> But it's worth noting that this is that the war is different. World War II mm -hmm. than World, World War I than World War II and other conflicts. It's not unreasonable that this counteroffensive could win the war for Germany. Yeah. And that's that's the worst part about it is, you know, like um, the, the whole intent of the spring offensive is basically not so much, it's almost, almost similar to the, the winter offensive in 1944. It's very much a case of we want to split the two Allied armies, though this thing is case, it's the British and the French. But also, we want to then circle in and crush the British Expeditionary Force in Europe, then force France to, to form concessions. And I will have to do this before the Americans can commit to the battle. This is one of those interesting pieces in war where it's so easy to focus just on the fighting, a specific battle from the time the first round is shot to the last. But the, I don't want to say promise, the fact that Americans were coming over, because words probably wouldn't mean as much, but the fact that Americans were on their way over gave the German high command this nervousness of, of it wasn't the American fighting ability. Um, I think a little bit it was American equipment, but that had to do more with just, it's a, it's a country untouched by this war for the most part. I mean, really the United States at this point had really just been on the positive side of a war, if I can say that, yeah. just they'd been making a lot of money. Um, it was, it was like a, I've heard the comparison of late in a boxing match, the final round of a boxing match and somebody new steps in. Oh, just, yeah. oh boy, this is a problem. So Germany has to kick this thing off. Maybe not exactly when they want to, maybe not as fully resourced when they want to as, as they wish they could have been, but it's going to be, is it fair to call it a last ditch effort to win the war? Or is that more than we, what we can see in hindsight? It's what we can see in hindsight, because um, even in 1918, there was no guarantee that the, the war was ending that year. Um, you have to remember that the British forces were essentially, they were bleeding white, very much like the American, the, the Germans were. Uh, the French lost significant portions of their adult male population during this time in the war. All the British Dominion troops weren't getting reinforcements to resupply their troops. America was, if the war continued, America was going to have to take the brunt of the fighting if they were going to continue. So even then this wasn't seen as a, you know, Germany's last hurrah. It was very, very much a case of if we win, great. If we don't, we are in trouble. I think that's a good lead into Amel because one of the reasons that it was looked at, correct me if I'm wrong, as an objective, was four future offensives leading into 1919. Oh yeah. Which is, because... so, this is a crazy part for me. I'm sorry. It, it, in, in all of these conflicts, you think about, well, what would have happened if the war went on, right? And you've got to do all these crazy calculations to think of, again, to go to World War II, what would it have looked like an invasion of Japan? But we know what another year of World War I would look like. Hmm. It wouldn't have been that much different than what we'd seen, especially in 1918. And there were plans to do that. It, it, all things considered, wasn't that crazy for this war to go into 1919, 1920. 
I mean, the Allies were making predict, you know, predictions of you know offensive operations in this the offensive season of 1920, even while this the you know the German defenses on the Mont Saint Quentin in the end of 1918 were collapsing. They were because remember at this point Germany was still very much in French territory. They hadn't you hadn't crossed the Rhine yet. It's a crazy little detail in this war, isn't it? Oh yeah, and you know with the German spring offensive, while it was in you know, it decimated the British Fifth Army, like it completely you know it, they took you know General Goff's army took the brunt of this fighting, and it had to be withdrawn. Like this was a one hit by you know and knocked out an entire unit. And were it not for, you know, piecemeal defences, very much like your Battle of the Bulge, you know, where troops stopped, the, you know, the offensive, that reinforcements were able to come through and indent this. But by this point in the war, you've got a bulge in the, in the Allied lines at Villas Bretno. Now, I think one of the things, we'll spend a little bit more time on the planning of this operation because it's, it's unique and really important. Planning, organisation, I think, but... Ross, you're more familiar with this battle than I am. Would you mind talking about why Amel was important, why he was chosen as an objective? Yeah. So basically, uh, with the German Spring Offensive, the Allied forces, so Dominion uh, divisions, blunted the attack. And then by July, by June of 1918, a lot of the territory that Germany had captured had been retaken. And the main reason for this was because they, it wasn't as fortified as the trenches in that system were. So you would end up with this, this concept was called peaceful penetrations, where trench raids, yeah, no, I love it, peaceful penetrations during a war. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> you know, with these, essentially it's a trench raid, but instead of going in, taking, you know, taking some prisoners or resources, then going back to your own lines, what the troops would do is they would go into, you know, the German positions and then not leave. And then the next group would come up. And the main reason why Hamel was taken, was chosen, was because one of the key locations around Hamel is Amion, which is a supply depot. It is a resource hub. And it's also the entrance, in, entrance into the Somme River Valley, which is a major uh, you know, logistical hub around the Western Front. So basically what happens was is um, 25th of April, 1918, the Germans attack villas Bretno. The 26th of April, the Australian forces retake villas Bretno. An important thing to point out is this is the first sign of the first ever tank on tank battle. And then at the opposite end of Plateau 104 is um, Hamel. So basically all you've gained, you can't go any further into the the Somme River Valley without taking Hamel. And this is where a lot of the bloody British fighting took place. And Ross and I have a video going uh, so we can kind of see each other while we talk here. And I got to say, Ross, you said peaceful penetration with a straight face. And I don't think I can, <laughs> I don't think I can do that. The high schooler in me hears that and thinks of all the different oh, yeah. directions we can take that, but good on you. Um, so this is an Australian operation through and through, but one of the cool things about it is this, it, you start to see, I feel like there's a lot of places in World War One. These innovations don't just happen overnight. Mm. There's these little, little attempts to work towards what I'll call combined arms warfare, where you've got artillery, aviation, tanks, and infantry working together. It's what we take for granted today. You know, somebody sitting in their tank on the battlefield is talking with infantry to their left and right. 
And it's a no-brainer to talk to other tanks and aircraft, fixed-wing, rotary, all of that. But it didn't, it wasn't so obvious right out the gate. And this is going to be one of those operations planned by the Australians where they're using Australian and American infantry, British tanks, and who were, I, I actually looked into this and couldn't find it. Do you know who were flying the aircraft? It's a mix of Australian and British aircraft, but that was supported by British and French artillery. Yes. All right. We got a little bit of everybody in. Oh, yeah. All the powers are involved in the battle, this battle. It's cool. And it's one of those, again, where you, you see it and think, what could have happened if this would have been around for a few years prior? I mean, this is, there's a reason that this one day, really, one day battle that involves fewer than 20,000 total troops on both sides. Mm is named a battle. There's places all up and down the Western Front where this is just an afternoon action. Oh, yeah. It doesn't have a name. Yeah, and if you're charting you know, the units that were involved in this, you'll see periods where they just go, the unit director would say, oh, we were here. It's like, great, yeah, you know you took like several hundred prisoners that day. But this battle, you know, this, you know, it doesn't factor into the history books if, because it's not those massive offensives. <laughs> But it's interesting. So let's let's look at the numbers, how this was. You, you mentioned the U.S. trying to. That's not the right way to phrase it. The U.S. needed experience. And. I guess I don't know where the, the I imagine the Australian command proposed it. It's kind of what it sounds like. Let's pull some American troops in, beef up the ranks, and it'll help give these fresh American troops their first taste of combat. Essentially, yeah. So essentially. By this point in the war, Australian forces are not getting the, re the recruitments that we need to continue offensive action. Um, the Australian 1903 Defence Act does point out that all men of war fighting age have to do military training, but that doesn't mean they have to. They can go overseas. So the year before, the Australian government tried to push as a conscription referendum to change the Defence Act, which means that our militias, so National Guard units, can be sent overseas and it fails. These, the troops in the field, they don't want draftees sent to fight alongside them, which means that we, our divisions are half the size they're meant to be. And one thing that they were, they did when they got to, got to the Western Front is they went to what they called nursery sectors and they, they learned how to fight in the war. And what the when the Americans came aboard, they did the same thing. They were slotted into British and French and Canadian and Australian and New Zealand units to learn what it was like, but it was never in like company or platoon level. It was in individual soldiers. When it comes to the Battle of Hamel, um, a significant amount of the troops involved in this battle are Americans. It's entirely because there aren't just aren't enough Australians. And General Monash, who's the commander of the Australian Corps, is he's very much, I don't want to waste my troops, but we need to do this. <laughs> This is an interesting thing that you'll see in, you know, just from the American perspective, but you can see it play out in these other wars. One of the benefits when a country joins a war for the first time is they have a lot of people interested in going, that volunteer, that lie in order to go. When you have been fighting a war like World War I for four years, it's a little bit harder. <laughs> Because people see the impact. They see the coffins coming back. They see the names in the newspapers. You can't hide the horrors of the Western Front. For the 18-year-olds in the United States in 1917, 1916, they could still feel invincible. 
I mean, then the worst part about it was um, the other the other criteria issue we had was that the Australians had a had a, the Australians had a pretty extensive like selection criteria to be, to even be able to go over to the Western Front. And I mean, we um, we never actually had our ours brought home. So our, our Australian Australians, Australian troops were actually buried where they fell. Uh, it wasn't until Vietnam that Australian troops were brought back. So what you would what we would get is entire pages of the newspaper would be dedicated to all those who died in the battle. And you get press notices in the churches. And there were groups to try and encourage enlistments. And a lot of the times it was very much like, I can't live in the shame of not, not of not going because my brothers went and I can and I stayed at home. Which then, you know, however, even with that, there's only about 300,000 Australians of eligible fighting age able to fight in the First World War. Which, on the one hand, is a lot of people, but on the other, in this conflict, it's not. No. <laughs> and that's the that, part about it, yeah. Does that tie into the creation of the Australian Corps? Essentially, yes, yeah. So prior to this point, there are five Australian divisions on the Western Front. There are two Australian divisions in North Africa. Um, but prior to the uh, 1918, 1918, the Australian divisions were broken, were assigned with the New Zealand divisions and ended up with two Anzac Corps. And so the Australian New Zealand Army Corps, Corps. Uh, but they weren't under a unified command. So we were under the command of General Birdwood, who was a British officer. And the British saw all the Dominion troops as theirs to do with as they see for, saw, saw fit. So basically what happened was that they would take um, an Australian division and they would slot it into a British unit for an attack and then take another British Australian unit and put it in another Br British unit for another attack. And we were used piecemeal, but we had our all our own logistical support. We had our own division, artillery. We had our own aircraft. But the British were hesitant to allow us to amalgamate all our forces under one command mainly because that would give us the power because we'd have a lieutenant general by that point to actually go to the German, the, the British high command and say, no. And I think that may be, that was entirely probably possible due to the creation of the Canadian Corps under General Curry. <laughs> so that gets into how the U.S. troops are then slotted during this fight because it's the same, I have a feeling it's the same frustration where rather than the U.S. sending a regiment or a division to fight, you know, to the left or right of the Australians, the idea is to move one company per Australian battalion, one U.S. company per Australian battalion. They ended up changing mm -hmm. that to where I think it was a platoon per a company. But yeah. anyways, they're dispersing the Americans out, filling in the gaps. And when the idea was for 10 American companies, at this time, companies were about 250 which Ross, that's big for today. So um, that's, that's big. It's a lot of people. So that's 2,500 Americans kind of filling gaps within the Australian ranks. When General Pershing finds out, the commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force, um, Allied Expeditionary Force, that's not right. American, American Expeditionary Force. Yeah, there we go. Mixing up conflicts here. Um, he's upset and he pulls six of them out. So pulls 60% of them out. Some disobey his order and stay in the ranks. But I think the concern anytime this happens is that the Australian commander will not care for American lives as much as his own. Mm -hmm. And 
you'll see this. It's there's, there's joint commands still today, but it tends to be at a pretty high level where there's general officers underneath that, that might be able to maybe override or intercept. There's, Mm. it's a major concern. So I don't know if that's exactly, I'm sure that was part of Pershing's thought. Another part was probably that he wanted a battle where the U S could be the main belligerent. Right. I mean, that was the, you know, that was the thing. I mean, um, I think one thing that Pershing probably didn't also count on was that this was General Monash's first actual core command operation. So prior to this, so General Monash, he went through the ranks. He was a brigade commander on Gallipoli. He was a divisional commander in the battle, you know, around Poziers and, and uh, uh, Fromel in 1917. He gets appointed as the core commander just before this battle. This is his first time as a actual um, a guy with a seat at the table, and he's and he's and General Pershing is a full general, and he's you now having to deal with this lieutenant general who has to deal with through General Rawlinson, who is his army commander, and it's like, hmm, I don't trust this guy because at the same same time, Monash is also dealing with threats to his own command by uh, politicians and the news media because he's a Prussian Jew by birth. And that, you know, also probably may have also influenced my, um, Pershing's decision-making. I, I wouldn't know though. <laughs> but, but, but he was smart and set a date of attack to kind of appeal to Pershing, right? Oh, yeah. He basically told General Rawlinson, it's like, the attack's going to be on the 4th of July to encourage and inspire the American troops. And if, if Pershing pulls his men out, I'm canceling the whole operation. So set for the 4th of July, I like it. It's oh, yeah. um, let's get into the combined arms piece a little bit. And then I think we can dive right into the actual, the actual mm-hmm. attack here. But one of the things they're going to do during this, there's, there's kind of innovations in, in communication, but a big one is going to be resupply. Mm-hmm. Tanks are going to carry things, equipment forward across no man's land. Aircraft are going to drop resupplies to the troops once they've advanced near or to their objective. And it, it brings to light one of these issues in the First World War where when you're crossing no man's land, an area filled with death and destruction, you want to be as light as possible. Mm. If you have the option to carry five pounds or 250 pounds, you want to be able to move quickly. Oh, yeah. You're not going to make it to the other side. But that 250 pounds is ammo, food, water, stretchers, medical equipment, all of that. So if you go light and get to the other side and don't have the stuff, you're no good. You're going to get kicked out of there. But if you have all the weight, you might not make it to the other side. So there's a real challenge in World War I, as there is in all conflicts, about resupplying at the right time. And in this conflict, or in this battle, it's going to be aircraft and tanks that make a big change doing just that. Yeah. And the main reason it came from that was um, the tank was new in the First World War. And it did not have a very good reputation by 1918, um, particularly with the Australians, but across the board. 1917 saw the Battle of Cambrai, which was the first time tanks were used successfully. Uh, they'd been used prior to that point. Um, but Australia's interaction with tanks came with the Battle of Bulacor. But basically, of the 15 tanks designed to associate with it, only three turned up and only one actually participated in the battle. So the Australian opinion of tanks, not that great. Come 1918, the Mark V tank has come out and the Whippet tank has come out much more mechanically reliable. 
And the commander of so General Courage, who's the commander of the fifth tank brigade, goes to General Monash and says, Hey, take another look at these tanks. They're actually pretty good. And they discover very quickly that one of the reasons why the tanks failed so horribly in the previous conflicts was because no one knew how to fight alongside them. They, you know, the higher ups thought they were just moving pillboxes. They weren't infantry support vehicles. And it's very much like, you know, so they would see see them as, oh, the tank can be unsupported. It's like, no, the tank has to be supported by artillery and aircraft and troops to be able to achieve the objectives because it is 45 tons of steel that will draw the fire of everything around it. School buses are huge. (laughs) So what what they discovered with that was, so what happened was the Australian troops but before the Americans were allotted to the to the units, these strains were trained alongside the sixty British tanks that were going to be used in the battle. To the point where they actually would paint divisional and battalion markings on the side of the tank and say, "That's your tank." So this tank, that tank is the fifteenth battalion's tank. You go where it goes. And when the Americans turned up, they painted their divisional and platoon and company's insignias on the side of the tank to basically point out, "This is my tank. I'm staying with that tank." And on top of that, 60 tanks have dissipated. There were four that were basically rolling storerooms and what they would follow behind the advance. And if you needed medical supplies or water or ammunition, you could go up to the side of it, bang on the door, like on, a, on a door on the side of this, like, this, like this cubby that had been built onto the side of the tank. And a guy would open it up and be like, what do you need? He goes, oh, I need ammo. Here's a bandolier of ammo. Go, continue fighting. And you just keep running back and forth to it. <laughs> And that's Great. just the tank. But for the aircraft, um, the Australian, like the ninth, nine, number, number nine squadron Australian Flying Corps were using these large reconnaissance aircraft called RE-8s. The British called them Harry Tates. They were particularly not liked, not very well, very much not very well armed, but great for a reconnaissance role because they could orbit for a very long time. Number nine squadron realised we have under hull bomb racks. We can put things in those bomb racks and one thing they realized is that the standard bomb that they were using weighed exactly the same amount as an ammunition box so they attached a a, a makeshift uh, makeshift parachute which was just a piece of canvas tied it to the bottom of a like side of an ammunition box and it's a standard you know uh two foot by one foot ammunition box strapped it to the underside of the aircraft took off and then dropped it and the box survived. There we go. And basically, so, so number nine squadron goes, it goes to General Monash, goes, um, sir, we have an idea. And that was one of the things that Monash was really good at, was taking ideas from other people and then coordinating them into a larger uh, operation. So basically, he's, he told the, um, the Royal Flying Corps, precursor to the Royal Air Force, and said, I want you to train with number nine squadron on how to do this because your aircraft are going to be doing this. And that's how you get it resupplied by air. But one of the other things that happens is artillery support. Uh, Monash, again, loves to innovate things. Um, prior to Hamel, the Canadians have started using coloured smoke fired by artillery to mark out objectives and mark out lines of offensive. Monash thought, maybe we could use it diversionarily. So entirely up to the Battle of Hamel, he'd been instructed the French and British artillery units to fire coloured smoke into the German lines at periods throughout the day. 
And sometimes he said, include gas in that cold stuff. <laughs> and, you know, we all thought it's like gas is a horrible weapon. Yes, but everyone used it. Even the Australians used it. The Americans had gas units. And it was used in this sense more as a nuisance effect because what would happen was the Germans became accustomed that coloured smoke meant gas because they thought that the gas was the coloured smoke was meant to have been in, uh, into they thought the, the target yeah it might and let the Allies know oh we're using gas here so when it came to the actual battle spoilers when the Australian and the Americans went into the trenches they found Germans wearing gas masks. I saw a term called, oh, let me make sure I get it right here because it was unique. Conditional, conditional firing. I'd never heard that mm. before. But that's exactly what that is. They're conditioning the response from the Germans. Oh, yeah. It's kind of crazy. And Monash, and Monash had great glee when he found out about this. He was just like, you know, when, when he said, like, oh, we captured entire units of German soldiers wearing gas masks. And so then, yeah. I was going to say that's important because those gas masks make it harder to breathe, even if there's no gas. They make mm. it harder to communicate, harder to see, harder to function. Everything that you're doing is more challenging than the gas mask. So if you can find a way to get the enemy to put their gas mask on and you don't have to, little I mean, advantage. I mean, I mean, spoiler for my listeners, Preston is a veteran of Afghanistan. Now you've worn NBC protection at some point, no doubt, in your training, and you've got nice windowed goggles for your gas mask in the first world war particularly the german rebreather gas mask in 1918 is a mole style gas mask but there's tiny little holes where your eyes would be so you like like toilet paper rolls at on over your eyes and that's what you're trying to see out of while people are coming at you and that's (laughs) that's what that's what the germans had to deal with (laughs) whereas the allies came across wearing bandanas and face masks so that was one of these challenges of gas is if you fire it and the enemy has to gas, put their masks on, you do too by the time you get there. Hmm. So if, if, if they're able to find a way to, uh, to only have one side put their mask on, I like it. Well, the, the focus of or what we really wanted to dive into with this episode, I think that was a good buildup, is there's some individual stories, a couple of Victoria Cross recipients mm-hmm. and a Medal of Honor recipient. Um, I think we're probably going to start that with the victoria cross yeah so there are two australians received the victoria cross for the battle of hamel uh thomas axford and uh henry dalzell now we're going to focus on henry dalzell not because his action was any greater or lesser than axford's it's because henry's is actually the thousandth victoria cross recipient in the entirety of the british empire Ah. later british commonwealth so this is a pretty big deal (laughs) that's cool So basically, Henry Delzell, he was, uh, he was born on the 18th of February, 1893 in Invernbrook, far northern Queensland. He was the son of a miner, James Dalzell and Eliza Maggie, and he grew up around that area and becoming a locomotive fireman on the Cairns Atherton Railway when he grew up. He would enlist in the Australian Imperial Force on the 16th of February, sorry, 16th of January, 1915, and was, was assigned to the 5th Reinforcements, the 15th Infantry Battalion, a part of the 4th Infantry Brigade, under Colonel John Monash, who is the same John Monash who would actually plan the attack on Hamel. Dazel would actually follow Hamel through his career. Uh, after a period of training in Australia, he traveled to Egypt and eventually arriving in Gallipoli 
and he officially joined the battalion on the 13th of June, 1915. Uh, the unit, the 15th, was actually assigned to defending portions of the Anzac beachhead, but his first major engagement was the attack on Sari Bear, on the, on the Sari Bear Ridgeline as part of the August offensive, which was the Allies' final great push on the Gallipoli Peninsula, where he was, being, he was evacuated to England with rheumatism, which is something he would have played his entire military career. He rejoined the unit in Egypt in 19, uh, 28th of March, 1916, a part of the, during the AIF expansion following the Gallipoli withdrawal. So basically after the Gallipoli campaign, Australia only had two divisions. After we, when we came back after Egypt, we began it with four. They basically did, okay. they split each battalion and it became, it gained a sister battalion and it was re, uh, fresh recruits were brought over. And they, the intent being that the Gallipoli veterans would train the new troops. You see that a lot, and particularly in the case of that we only had 20,000 troops for Gallipoli. We ended with 40,000 by the end of the uh, operation. Um, basically, the entirety of the... Basically, what happened was is that the AIF was broken up into two. The AIF is the Australian Imperial Force. Uh, had two corps. So it was Anzac Corps 1 and Anzac Corps 2 which were the New Zealand and the Australian troops were broken up between the two units. Anzac Corps 1 went to France on 13th of May, 1916 and entered the the Guanier sector in the Patacolet or Mentier sector in North, you know, know, which is the British controlled area. Very important area in the Second World War. Yeah, for sure. In the First World War, it is known as the nursery sector. It's basically where they go and they teach you how to fight on the Western Front because the Australian troops were considered... Physically imposing at five foot eight, but have no had no concept how to fight a, a modern war. Uh, and when he got when he got into the lines, he was actually just it was obvious that he was a soldier's soldier. He was well liked by both his officers and enlisted, and gained the nickname Two Guns Harry, because he would actually sport two non-regulation revolvers, a Colt and a Luger. I don't know how he got them or where he got them from, but he would actually stick them into his belt and then have his Lee Enfield rifle on his back. And that's how he would fight. Why not? Why not? <laughs> in July, he was involved in the second battle of the Somme, participate in the battles of Pozier and Mouquet Farm, and then weathered the horrendous win- winter of 1916, 1917. So that was the worst winter on record until the winter of the winter of 1944. Oh, good timing. Yeah. <laughs> good timing. there. Yep. And when campaign when campaigning season re- resumed in February 1917, he participated in the bloody attack on Gudecourt, where the Australian troops were basically were bloodied by a German surprise attack. In March, after German forces withdrew to the Hindenburg Line, which was a series of defensive structures built during the winter to allow them to retrain and resupply, again the Germans love to do that. The British Fifth Army under General Goff went on the offensive in order to spoil this advance and destroy as much artillery as possible. Uh, Germany counterattacked at Langenkor where the Anzac forces were located and Dalzell was, in the, was blunt, in the front line again to blunt the attack. With no time for a breather, the Anzac Corps would go on to attack on the Battle of Bullecourt. So Dalzell is there at the first Australian interaction with tanks. And basically, they, considering their abysmal performance, the Australian troops were extremely mistrustful of them. That's a direct quote from the battalion commander. It's like, we are incredibly... Even though severely battered by the attack, the 15th Battalion and Delzell would participate in the Battle of Messines in June, 19, June 1917, and he'll be wounded in, by shrapnel in the Battle of Polygon Wood on the 16th of October and wouldn't return to his unit until June 1918. And all these places I mentioned previously, 
uh, are pretty much the battle history of Australia's military experience in the Western Front. And in the side of some of those horrific fighting to the point, um, I've mentioned several in several ep- previous episodes of my podcast, uh, a lot of these important people participate in those battles as well. So by the Battle of Hamel, Dalzell was a driver. He was responsible for wagons and horse supplying the front. And on the 3rd of July, in response to the withdrawal for the removal of all those American troops, the call came out for additional troops to assist in the attack. So basically they were taking anyone who wasn't directly involved in the battle and said, we need you to keep, to fill the lines filled by taking made by the Americans leaving. And he volunteers and he's slotted into the line as a second to a Lewis gun team. So the Lewis gun is a, was a relatively light man portable machine gun. It had a crew of three, very high rate of fire, very effective, very iconic looking weapon, had a, a drum uh, magazine that sat on the top and a long, thick barrel. And in that battle, so in the year, so the objective of the 15th Battalion during the Battle of Hamel was Pear Trench. It was named that based on its appearance, and it was at the very center of the four mile front that was the plan of the Battle of Hamel. There's only four miles, a very small attack. They would be supported by three British tanks. And these were not the shitty Mark IIs that they, they dealt with at Bullet Corps, but the advanced Mark V. And they'd been training alongside them to counteract the obstacles that tank and infantry warfare still face today. You know, um, despite all that training, the tanks became lost in the darkness and failed to reach the jumping off point in time, which wasn't encouraging to the Australians because they're getting flashbacks <laughs> of Bullet Corps. They're like, oh, God, not again. Uh, that is some of the fact is uh, also only compounded by the fact that a lot of the artillery that they were in, they were meant to have fell short. Uh, it actually landed in a lot of the massed 15th battalion resulting in sure. casualties before the battle even started and this, left. Yeah. You know? Well, I was going to say that that creeping barrage thing is something that I think is, is much more easily shown in movies and TV shows or even drawn up on paper than carried out in reality. I, I read that, they were expected to march 70 yards, 70 meters or so behind the barrage. So a creeping barrage is the idea that you lay down a wall of artillery fire and you slowly move it towards the enemy trenches. So the enemy just sees it, you know, it's destroying anything in the path and then it hits the enemy position for a little while. And as soon as it lifts, bam, there's infantry right there, as opposed to artillery, 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 it stops. And then guys get up and march across no man's land fully exposed. But the challenge there is you have one round just a little bit short, 70 yards, 70, that's nothing, man. Mm. I mean, a, a round lightly, slightly short kills your own very quickly. So yeah. it's, it's a big risk, kind of a big risk reward type thing, especially at this point in when it comes to the technology of artillery. And the worst part about it is basically this um, bombardment a lot of the German defences, so all the barbed wire and landmines and defensive stru- structures were untouched by the artillery. So these Australian troops, they're getting out of the jumping off point, getting into the, out into the assault trench, and all they see is barbed wire. They don't see any of the crater holes or any of the stuff that they would use for cover. And the problem with that was is... Right? Uh, 
they that's blah, 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 why it slows the advance. So the Australian troops are then having to go in there with wire cutters and cutting the wire or throwing themselves onto the barbed wire so that their brothers can come in over the top of them to continue the attack. And fortunately, German Maxim machine guns start opening up on them. So this is a very well-defended defa- area. There, there's buildings in, the, in Hamel, there's trenches, there's blockhouses, very like uh, what's the word it's very uh overlapping fields of fire sure and basically what happens in, in um there's also very high vegetation so it means that normally you, you fight like so you can't like just crawl through you have to actually be standing upright to move through these defenses because you can't see where you're going otherwise mm-hmm. and the lewis gun teams which are predominantly usually fired prone they're firing these guns from the hip which, you know, it's great, but you're drawing a lot of fire when you're doing this, obviously. So Delzel says his brother's getting, yeah. So Delzel sees his, you know, um, says his brother's getting cut down by the constant German fire. And while his own Lewis gun was attempting to suppress these German guns, another gun came to bear on these Australian troops. This is when he charges, as he says it, balls out, which is a full sprint, <laughs> yep. twin revolvers in hand, to the point where his fellow soldiers would say that he'd rush straight into death. And how he survived the hurricane of lettuce downs them. This is like, it was like a count after the battle. Uh, when he's in range of the revolvers, he kills the gunner, turns on the loader, kills him as well, so knocks that knocks the, the first German gun out. And as soon as that's knocked out, they, they, the, the first gun turns on him. So he basically brings the maximum round to him, to, to Dalzell, and actually gives the Australians a breathing room to get through the German defenses and actually push forward. And the problem is that he's because Dalzell's in the German trenches. He's in yeah. the trenches as well. He has a draw on them because he's got revolvers. So he can, you know, he's firing and then he's swiveling out of, into cover. And he's coming back out again and he's shooting. It's very much like a shootout and like, like you know, the OK Corral kind of setup. He kills the, um, the gunner. He silences that gun as well. And just about he's about to do that, a German, a rifleman, a German soldier, by all accounts, apparently he was a boy. You know, by this point, German troops were very either very young or very old. This kid maybe 16, 17. Mm-hmm. He gets a lucky shot off and strikes him in his trigger finger, actually shoots his trigger finger off. And the thing is, Dalzell, he turns. He just tackles the kid. He just charges at him, tackles him to the ground. He's got his pistol, his revolver pointed at him and decides he's going to spare him because, and, he's, and this is Dalzell's own words, the youngster fought so well, takes him prisoner. And then he continues to, and he just gets up and continues to lead the attack, um, you know, knocking those two guns out, allow the Australians to attack the pear trench, and then they split up and attack down both directions. And you're probably thinking, well, you know, that's enough, mate. You've taken out two machine guns single-handedly, taken prisoners. You can go back to friendly lines and get aid. Yep. To the point where, you know, his lieutenant actually orders him to do that. And But then, you know, like every other Medal of Honor of Victoria Cross recipient, that desire to help his brothers takes over. And as soon as the lieutenant leaves eyesight, he just rejoins the unit, keeps going. He resumed, he, he joined, links back up with his Lewis gun team. And then in, when it runs out of ammunition, he heads back over open ground at full sprint to secure more ammunition. He's bleeding. He's got severe blood loss at this point. And while he's, while he's doing that, he's refilling the clips, like the big drum magazine of the Lewis gun, because ammunition isn't stored in magazines in 1918. It's in boxes. So he's taking each individual round and he's slamming it into the drum. But he's also filling up the magazines of his brother's Lee Enfield's rifles. 
because he realizes he can't shoot anymore because he's trigger yeah. finger's gone. And um, while he's doing this, he's actually he's shot in the temple. Now his brothers are distraught because they've seen everything he's done so far, and he's helping out. He's got a you know crate of ammunition. He's bringing back up to the back up to the front, and he, they, he just drops. And you know they think, oh, he's dead. Yeah. So they put him in with you know, they placed him with the other dead for burial, and he's lowered into the dirt alongside 345 of his brothers who died during this battle. Overall, 800 over 800 Australians would be killed. And as they're about to bury them, they hear a moan. Dalzell is still alive. He's shot in the temple and he's still alive. He's quickly recovered and taken back to an aid station, then back to England to recover. When he's strong enough, King George invites him to Buckingham Palace to personally invest him with the Victoria Cross. That's the thousandth Victoria Cross. And he would be, he'd be finally fit to return to Australia in January 1919 and probably discharge in July. In 1920, he would marry a former nurse and take up a soldier settlement block in near the Athens Tablelands for farming, but it doesn't work out. He has PTSD. He has health issues. He moves to Sydney to try and uh, take up gold mining because gold mining is still a thing in Australia by this point. Unfortunately, he returns to his farm in Queensland when his wife becomes ill. He would divorce and he'd remarry. But then by the mid, by the mid 1930s, the army has need for him because unfortunately by this point, Dalzell's become broke. He's a VC recipient, but he has no money attached to him mm. because he can't work anymore. So they actually use him part-time in the 9th, 15th Battalion of the Australian Military Force. So he's in the militia now. He's promoted to sergeant. So he's a private during the entirety of his operations on the okay. Western Front, a private. He's promoted to sergeant, and he's used to report recruitment for troops and, trained, and training. And then when the invasion of Australia, the, the threat of invasion of Australia uh, diminishes, he's discharged the 24th of December, 1943. He'll remarry. He marries another nurse and has three children who are still alive. And actually in 1949, he mailed his VC to Princess Elizabeth as a birth gift to Prince, for Prince Charles. Now, Princess Elizabeth is Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> so, so the princess mails back the, the VC and says, no, I, I, we appreciate the gift, but you need, your family needs to keep this. And then he, in 1956, he went to London for Victoria Cross centenary celebrations. He met the Queen, and then he met the Queen Mother the following year. And up until his death on the 24th of July, 1965, every Anzac Day, he would actually travel to Brisbane and march with the 15th Battalion. And that's, you know, was, was, was his thing he did every year. And when he died, he was given a full military honour, a full military funeral, and he was ashes were interred in the Mount Thompson Memorial Garden in Queensland. So this guy's, you know, his life's a pretty sensitive career. <laughs> it's crazy. And he loves like the full gamut of the war, 1915, 1918. Which is the exact opposite. I think it plays in well here of the American story we're going to talk about, Thomas Pope. So Pope was a corporal during the time of the attack with uh, e Company, part of the 131st Infantry Regiment, the 33rd Infantry Division. So he's in the Illinois National Guard, grew up in Chicago. I was born just a couple hours south of Chicago, so Illinois man myself. When he gets into the Battle of Amel, he's been in France for a little over a month, but hasn't seen any action at all. So 
you know, compare that with the story Ross just told. Dalzell had, saw every part of the Australian campaign in World War I fighting constantly. Hope hasn't seen any action yet. That, of course, will change during the Battle of Amel. There's counterattacks the evening of the 4th. So, like Ross mentioned, all the objectives are pretty well taken in the first day, but that didn't mean the fighting stopped. The Germans would push back, and then the Australians and Americans would push back again. Little skirmishes here and there. But the Germans knew the area relatively well and understood the trenches they had built and the fighting positions they had built and were able to infiltrate some of those. It wasn't always clear. When you take an enemy trench, it's not like you have a map and you get down into the trench and you say, you pull out the map and say, now I know where everything goes. There were turns and crevices and entrances and exits all over the place that the soldiers have to figure out for the first time in combat. So it wasn't, un, it wasn't uncommon for a force, once they're pushed out of a trench, to be able to re-infiltrate relatively easily and cause some problems. And that's kind of what the Germans were doing during some of these counterattacks the evening of the 4th and in the morning of the 5th. One of these counterattacks splits some of the Australian units. I keep saying Australian, but the joint Australian-American units. And there's a machine gun kind of the tip suppressing some of those organizations as they try to retake the positions from the Germans. That is what Corporal Pope notices. And one thing that's interesting with these, when, you know, when you've got an infantry force against a machine gun is they're going to be focused on the larger group. And as soon as the infantry starts firing back, it's, Hey, there's a squad, there's a platoon, there's a company over there, but there's kind of, there can be a weakness when you're firing a machine gun, you've got the, the loud noise of it going off in your ear and you're watching the enemy force trying to keep them at bay. If one person gets up and charges, They might not be on your radar, especially if they're not right where you're looking. And that's what Pope does. So if his guys all start to fire, it gives away their position. But if he just gets up and charges by himself, he might be able to sneak in the German machine gunner. He does that. Same, I mean, how many, you've heard these stories hundreds of times, they're crazy, where somebody sees a machine gun, gets up, charges, because it's not just the machine gunner. You got to worry about the loader, the spotter, and anybody else that's in that trench. So Pope charges this machine gun, kills the gunner, uses his bayonet to kill another, and holds off eight more German soldiers in and around that area until his squad, his platoon, can come up and go on to capture over 100 German soldiers in the next little bit of time, which is a lot of baseline. There were 1,600 total captured during this battle, so for his platoon to take 100 in a short period of time is, is substantial. But Pope's story is fast and furious. So again, the opposite of Dalzell. He, after that action, the next day is gassed, as so many were on the Western Front, and that ends his war. So for the entirety of World War I, Corporal Pope saw about two days of combat. But those two days were enough for him to be awarded the British Distinguished Distinguished Conduct Medal, and the Medal of Honor. He was the first, just kind of some nuance here, the first U.S. Army soldier to be awarded the Medal of Honor in World War I. There were sailors and there were Marines that had been awarded it. There was one other soldier, Henry Johnson, but African-American soldier, and in turn, that wasn't awarded until 2015. So, It's one of those where 
kind of got a, I don't know, I don't know the right way to say that. It was at the time, it was the first Medal of Honor awarded to a U.S. Army soldier. We'll leave it at that. He passed in 1989 as the last surviving World War I Medal of Honor recipient from the U.S. Army. But kind of a different story, a very short, quick story, Corporal Pope, just a little bit of combat. I mean, for the entirety of World War II, two days, actually seeing rounds fired in anger versus Dalzell, which I, every time I say it, I'm, I feel like I'm saying it wrong, by the way. Um, seeing just about everything possible across the Western Front and in the Mediterranean. But I love this story, man. I think it's really cool because it's not just the two individuals. It's not just the fight, but to me, this is kind of where we can look back and say, this is where the brotherhood of Australian and American troops in combat first started, something that carries on to today. Oh, yeah. And I, I do love that there's a quote that Monash, the gen- so General Monash wrote after the battle, and he says, the perfect, modern bat- the perfect modern battle plan is like nothing so much as the score for an orchestral composition where the various arms and units are the instruments and the tasks they perform are their respective musical phrases. And that, that Monash was an engineer prior to the war. And he took that um, engineer's mindset to the battle. And, you know, he saw very much, he, he was very respectful of the American troops. He sent glowing reports back to Pershing. Um, one thing to point out is the Distinguished Conduct Medal is the second highest award for gallantry in the Imperial Award System of Awards. Second only to the Victoria Cross. And only one American has, been, has received the Victoria Cross, and that is the unknown warrior of the First World War. So Pope's in pretty good company. That's impressive. <laughs> and you look at, you know, even, you know, when you mentioned it, you know, like he saw, you know, the machine gun open up and he charged. He's like, you see, you know, Dalzell, he, same thing. He sees, you know, his brother's getting cut down by the machine guns and goes, no, nah, I'm going to change this. Charges in, takes the guns out. And that's how, you know, how many, how many Medal of Honor and how many Victoria Cross recipients saw that and was like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm going to stop this. So I'll, I'll wrap up what I have to say, at least here. That's with right. a quote from, no, no, no. I was going to say, I, I think this is how I'll end it. But Ross, you can, okay. you, you can add to, of course, um, Stars and Stripes, a military publication and towards the end of World War I, a little article came out. I just really like this one. I've cited it before, but um, it's talking about the Australians. So American military publication talking about the Australians and said, quote, without exception, the Aussies all hope to be sent home by the other way so that they can see America. We hope they'll be sent home that way if they want to. Besides wishing to have them see America, which we are pardonably proud of, we should like to have America see them. I love that. Yeah, I love that. That's good. And... (laughs) And then comes the Second World War and the Australian troops and the American troops do it all over again. Right back at it. That might be a teaser for a second episode there, Ross, but maybe appreciate you doing this, man. This was a lot of fun. I, I learned a lot diving into this battle. So thanks so much. Pleasure. Best thing, I want to finish though, I would say one thing uh, with the battles in the Western Front, usually when taking months, the Battle of Hamel was supposed to take 90 minutes. Um, Monash re- reported back with regret to General Rawlinson. The Battle of Hamel took 93 with all objectives taken. Owning up to his failures, yeah. Yep. 
<laughs> I like it. Well, thanks again. I like it, yeah. Talk soon, man. <laughs> yeah, talk soon. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.